0: This is Dot, and this is Lindsay, and you're listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people who love manuscripts about the manuscripts they love the most. Today, we're talking with Laura Estel. Laura is Professor of English and Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Digital Humanities at St. Francis Xavier University in Canada. Laura teaches literature, critical writing and book history, and her research interests include digital humanities, digital pedagogy, Shakespeare, early modern literature, book history and manuscript studies. She has written monographs and edited both essay collections and digital projects. One of her current digital projects is the Dramatic Extracts website, which presents extracts from early modern plays edited with Beatrice Montadoro, which by the way is relevant to what we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, And she has work forthcoming on encoding early modern commonplace books in the classroom, which is probably also relevant to what we're gonna be talking about today. So Laura, welcome. Uh, We're really pleased to have you. Why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about this manuscript we're gonna be talking about.
1: Sure, thanks Dot and thanks Lindsay. It is a pleasure to be here. Uh, so the manuscript that I chose today is Bodleian manuscript Sancroft twenty nine, um, and I had a hard time deciding, but this is one of those manuscripts that I keep coming back to over and over again, um, and it is a uh, it's about four inches by six inches, and it is uh yeah it's a uh, uh, and it's over five hundred pages, but most of the pages are blank. But the pages that do have things on them are absolutely fascinating. So uh, a lot of the people that you've had on your podcast have been medievalists talking about early manuscripts, although uh, I did have a chance to catch uh, some episodes, uh, uh, Emily Friedman with her 19th century Mm -hmm. manuscript, and then there was the other 20th century one. I haven't listened to that one yet. Yeah, Um, that was fun. Yeah, Um, so this is also a manuscript that was created after print. So this is a late 17th century manuscript uh, that was written by Archbishop Sancroft, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. So he's kind of an interesting figure. Um, And the reason I care about this manuscript is that I am interested in the reception of early modern plays from scribal scribal culture to the digital. And uh, uh, Sancroft is a really interesting figure in the reception of plays, partly because he is one of the most prominent people that we know who read and responded to plays. So Sancroft 29 is a dramatic miscellany, which is a manuscript with parts taken from plays and primarily from plays. So you've heard of miscellanies, which are just all sorts of things. Um, Poetic miscellanies, which is an assortment of verse this is a dramatic miscellany. It's not a uh, uh, full text plays, it's parts from plays. And as I like to say, uh, when someone copies parts from plays, it tells us what they take literally and figuratively from the play.
0: Okay, so I immediately have like two questions, which yeah. you, might, you might be ready to answer at some later point, but I'm gonna go ahead and ask them now. My first question is, when you say parts of plays, is this like, single lines or is it like bigger sections or is it both like how much are we talking about
1: so the way Sancroft did it is he's mostly copying single lines sometimes like a paired line in dialogue but he actually um he was a big scribbler uh he wrote tons of manuscripts he also was a big book collector um and I actually have a quote from one of his uh 19th century biographers it's really fun which is why I wanted to get it I wanted to read it to you. Um, The 19th century biographer said, he was a particularly diligent as a transcriber. Uh, It appears not to have been his constant habit to transfer to his commonplace books with the most persevering industry, copious extracts from the printed or manuscript books, which he perused. It has been said that no person ever transcribed so much with his own hand. Um, Wow. (laughs) And so he's, as as he's reading, he's reading pen in hand, and he's sort of using that as a way to distill what he's reading. And so in this case, he's reading plays, and he's copying them uh, uh, in the form of commonplaces. And this is one of the reasons I love this manuscript. So do you know much about commonplace books? Or have you, do you know? Do you want me to tell you about commonplace books? Please, I think you, you should.
0: should, yes.
1: Okay, so... Uh, A commonplace book is a kind of printed book or manuscript that's organized usually alphabetically by commonplace heading, and a a heading would be something like marriage, and then there would be little snippets of poetry or wisdom that uh, would be able to be uh, generalized and taken to that situation, and the idea is it is your source of wisdom so if you are writing something you can go to a commonplace book Uh, and find things. So there are pre-composed commonplace books that print uh, these, but it was also one of the ways that people were taught to read is to find things thematically and then sort them thematically as they go. So Sancroft starts this manuscript as a commonplace book, and he offers headings. And it's really hard not to do some like deep dive biographical readings about which headings have the most or with the headings that he chooses. Um, And then he actually gives up. He's like, no, I can't be bothered to try to sort these materials into headings. I'm going to just copy uh, from the plays as I go in a chunk of text. So here's a line from this person. Here's a line from this person. But the thing is, he doesn't say who is speaking ever. Uh, So that's the (laughs) The idea is that it's not... Not the plot of the play that's important. It's not what's happening there. It's about um, uh, uh, it's about the idea that you could like take mm-hmm. away, mm-hmm. Um, and and even in early modern books, sometimes there would be these little they look like quotation marks, but they're commonplace markers, and they would be telling you this is what you should copy. This is the crux, and so oftentimes they would be a nice rhyming couplet, something that you can like decontextualize from the play uh, and and, like take this little nugget away.
0: That's so so interesting. So that actually, I think you've just answered what my second question was, uh, which was if he was writing this down as he was reading the plays or if he was watching the plays. Cause I think a lot of people think of plays as things that you watch. And this is clearly like he has the plays printed next to him and he's like reading them and not what is that correct yeah. or was he would he go to a play and like sit in the audience and like write in <laughs> his um,
1: so his some people would go to plays and sit in the audience and write in their tables and copy down parts and uh, uh some playwrights got a little uppity about that uh Marston and Johnson actually criticized people who would go to the plays for their borrowed wit um but the idea of commonplace markers in a printed play is the exact opposite mm-hmm. where it says like, here, take this. Yes. Um, Margarita de Grazia writes about that. But the But just because commonplace markers are a thing, it doesn't mean they're in every printed play text by any means. And Sancroft is not following those. He's copying what he wants. He's choosing the parts that he wants and he's using printed books. And we know exactly which printed books he's using in some cases, which give us some hilarious insights as well. Um, So uh, uh, before I, I dive in there, I wanted to show you what one of the pages looks like with the commonplace heading. I know you've also had some very beautiful manuscripts on this podcast uh, this is not necessarily a beautiful manuscript but it is one I love um
0: we love the ugly messy ones so this is just totally fine we're so actually, I, like that.
1: this is actually not bad his handwriting is not bad at all um let me see so can I just put this into the chat
0: yeah just stick it in chat and then we'll um we'll share it in the show notes I'll download it and share it in the show notes um okay while you're while you're doing that I want to say that Your description of a commonplace book actually reminds me of a medieval genre, uh, which is, I think, usually called a manipulus florum, uh, which is Latin for a handful of flowers. And it's a type of book that I think I've heard it said that they're usually used for like writing sermons, but to be used for other things. But it's like collections of quotations from the church fathers, usually organized yeah. under headings and if you want oh gosh I have to write a story or I have to like write a sermon about you know uh marriage or you know matrimony so I'm gonna go look for matrimony in my in my book and like pull out these and like put them together to make my sermon. So That's it's exactly amazing it. that yeah.
1: So yes you're absolutely right dot this is the same kind of thing that uh, uh existed all through the Middle Ages and I even heard that there was a, uh, uh, classical traditions of um copying things by heading. Oh, cool. um, this is the first heading in Sancroft's the, in this Sancroft manuscript. There's multiple Sancroft manuscripts. Uh and uh it's also one of my favorites. It says profane and debauched atheists.
0: I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um
1: and uh uh you can see here that he's got you know uh three, four selections from plays here. Um, Sometimes he has a heading where there's only uh, uh, one line. So for instance, um, the page for doubt only has one extract under it, and the page for fortunate only has one extract. And then other times he fills the whole page with ideas. So uh, the page for courage is all the way full, as is the page for lust. Interesting. I'm disappointed, uh,
0: actually, that there that there isn't more under profane and debauched atheists. I would, I would like there to be more, you know, you'd think there'd be more. Maybe he's not reading those kinds of plays, though. I don't
1: know. Well, he I mean, he is reading some of those plays. Um. Uh. But then he gives up on uh, this organizational system by the time he gets mm-hmm. to some of those plays. Uh, right, um, right. So he's I maybe I should tell you a little bit about Sancroft so that we understand why uh, uh, why he copies some of the things he copies. So he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the highest religious figure in the Church of England. So it's the Pope of the Church of England. Um, and uh, he is the Archbishop of Canterbury at during the Glorious Revolution. So this is the late 17th century. And what we're looking at here are plays that were published Usually before the closure of the theaters in 1642. So this manuscript is mostly taken from plays that are um, considered early modern like uh, pre 1642 sometimes called Renaissance plays, and he is living after the restoration. Um, and so he's going back to plays that are uh, uh, more than 50 years old when he's copying them. He has a couple of more modern plays in this, one by Otway, one by Dryden, but mostly it's Beaumont and Fletcher, Shakespeare, uh, Thomas Tomkiss, some some people that we don't usually read often. Um, and uh, uh, we'll get to an example from Quarles too, I think. Um, so what happened though is that... Um, James II becomes King of England and he's Catholic. And this is a huge problem because in England, he's actually the last Catholic king ever to be in England. And um, there's a big concern, right? What happens if uh, uh, total geopolitical warfare breaks out? Is he going to uh, just follow step with the Pope, or is he going to have England's best interests at heart? Um, And so this is like well after uh, the Reformation has even trickled over to England. So Sancroft is the Archbishop of Canterbury then, and he swears fealty to James II. But James II gets deposed during what's called the Glorious Revolution by William and Mary. And so William and Mary are, um, uh, they're good, they're good Protestants. Um, and, uh, uh, it's in 16, 1688 that they take the throne. Um, and Sancroft, he was actually one of the people who sort of led to James, James's deposition because he, uh, signed, he's one of the seven bishops is what they're called who signed, uh, uh, off on, um, criticizing the King for like making a declaration of indulgences which is like a super catholic thing to do and he is sort of a staunch protestant. Uh he he is a staunch protestant. Um so he sort of leads to the king's deposition. William and Mary come to the throne and he refuses to swear fealty to William and Mary. Because he's already sworn fealty to James and James is not dead. And so he is the most prominent member of what's called the nonjuring schism. So he is this deeply principled man who is also incredibly bookish. And some people argue like not great at his job because he likes books. So like he's, he would rather just be reading, you know? And so when he copies things about profane and debauched atheists, like it truly, uh, uh, brings me, it brings me joy to read what he's copying there. Um, Anyway, he ended up. Oh, also, he's. I think he might be the only Archbishop of Canterbury who did not die in that position. Uh, he was suspended by William and Mary two years later. They put someone else on. Oh
0: gosh, was it because he refused to, yep. to like, swear fealty? That was why they. Because he refused yeah.
1: to swear fealty from, and so that he's he's um, it's called non-juring was what mm-hmm. it was. So, yeah, he was a non-juror for his whole Interesting. life. Interesting. Yeah. He died three years later after his archbishopric was taken away.
0: Oh gosh, poor guy. Yeah. But he, liked to, but he liked to read older. I'm really interested in this, that he's reading older plays. Was that just a taste thing or why, why was he reading older plays?
1: So he was reading everything. He actually oh. uh, donated his library of over 6,000 books to Emmanuel College at the University of Cambridge. Um, and... And But his penchant for reading older plays is not a unique thing. So in 1642, if we take it back 50 years, the Puritans closed the theater during the English Civil War um, because theater is dangerous. It's got men dressing as women. It's lascivious. It's tantamount to dancing. We got to close the theaters. So they closed the theaters. And during this time, there is, there's no, you can't legally perform plays in professional theater. So there's a couple of workarounds. You can still publish plays. So Mm. plays get printed, including new plays and reprints of old plays. Um, Sometimes things are put on called drolls, which are like these little scenes with some um, music, but it's not a full play. And sometimes people will put on something and they call it an opera because that was A loophole as well. Um, But it's not until uh, 1660, when uh, Charles comes to the throne, uh, that the theaters are reopened, and that's called the Restoration. During the time period of 1642 on, is where we get the first dramatic miscellanies, the Mm -hmm. first manuscripts that are entirely taken from parts of plays. So before that, it's not until about 1590, when people start copying parts from English professional plays into their um, notebooks. But it's in 1642, after the theaters closed, that people are actively seeking out plays and actively copying from plays. And even after 1660, people are seeking these plays out, partly because uh, uh, of this idea that it's a nostalgia—the idea that pre-1642 theater is somehow just better—and yeah. in some cases, but not all cases, it's also a royalism, right? Like the theater is was closed by the Puritans. If you like plays, you are a royalist. You are going to copy from, uh, from from plays. So uh, there are a number of dramatic miscellanies. There's not that many um, that we know of, but I'm sure we'll find more. Um, and some of them are actually one of them we know was copied while the theaters were closed. This one is copied after they've reopened, but is still primarily going back to the pre 1642. Um, and there's another example in the Lansdowne collection of the British Library that's uh, even later, around 1700. All Shakespeare.
0: Wow.
1: So, yeah,
0: that's really yeah. interesting. There's a lot of there's a lot of reasons, you know behind that. I love the pol- like the whole political thing and the royalist thing. That's just so fascinating to me.
1: Yeah. Um, and so the thing also about uh, uh, these manuscripts is that um, people, they're not copying verbatim from plays all the time. They're sometimes copying verbatim, but sometimes mm-hmm. they are changing what they copy. And so when Sancroft gets to measure for measure, I don't know if you guys know that play very well. It's a Shakespeare play. Mm -hmm. One of the big parts, one of the big plot points involves uh, 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 a sister being forced to give up her virginity. Um, And Isabella says, and I'm going to read you Shakespeare's original, and then I'm going to read you to what, what Sancroft changed it to. That he had but 20 heads to tender down on 20 bloody blocks. He'll yield them up before his sister should her body stoop to such abhorred pollution. And Sancroft puts it in the first person. So you want to talk about like martyr complex here. Nay, had I 20 heads to tender down on 20 bloody blocks, I'll yield them up before I'll do it. Were it but my life, I'd throw it down as frankly as a pin. Oh my. And so it's really tempting to believe that he is positioning himself as the mm-hmm. political religious martyr based on biography that we know of him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so he so he changes things that he copies yeah um, interesting but so this page uh that we're looking at profane and depotched atheists is uh uh you can see that there's a number two next to the uh second little bullet point here mm-hmm. and that is because he starts off And he numbers which plays he's taking things from. So let me show you his table of contents. Well, his abandoned table of contents.
0: Oh, that's very short. (laughs) There's There's five items in this table of contents, which is, you know, maybe he copied lots out of each one, but I'm guessing that there are... That there's stuff in there that's not in the table of contents since you say
1: it's been lots of stuff in here not in the table of contents and so he's it's not just a table of contents it's more like a um a rubric so that when you see the number two on the other page we know that comes from the spanish curate so yeah the first five items here we see the mad lover the spanish curate the little french lawyer the custom of the country And then number five is crossed out. It says the noble gentleman. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those first five, including the one that's crossed out, there's a little brace and it says Fletcher. These are the exact order that it comes from in the Beaumont and Fletcher folio of 1647. So we know that he's reading a collected works of Beaumont and Fletcher, or at least he's trying to read a collected works of Beaumont and Fletcher. And then he gives (laughs) up. he stops after four plays
0: right
1: and he instead says forget he the bridges... last
0: one and levels yeah. it out
1: yeah he he switches to um uh the virgin widow by quarrels is what that says um and i'm gonna see if i can put a link in the chat for you here uh so you can see the uh the title page uh, the table of contents in the beaumont and fletcher it follows exactly what he's copying. So what I really like about this manuscript being a manuscript after print is that we can yep. see him interacting with printed sources. And here he starts in with Beaumont and Fletcher, kind of abandons it. He doesn't He doesn't even get like a quarter of the way through this massive tome of plays.
0: Yeah, uh, no, there's probably like 30 plays listed here. There's a lot in this table of contents.
1: So not only does he abandon the idea, it's like he, it seems like he sets out that he's going to read the whole works of Beaumont and Fletcher, which he identifies as being by Fletcher, which is a common... Um, uh, mo- people do attribute most of the plays primarily to Fletcher. Um, but he also abandons his whole organizational system. So let me open up a page so that you can see Uh, what it looks like after he stops using commonplace headings. So in this case, he just starts uh, and copies from whatever part of the play interests him and then goes down in order. So Mm -hmm. on the left, you can see that there's a little bit of um, a heading. It says it's hard to read because it's small. His writing is so teeny because this is not a big manuscript either. Mm -hmm. Um, It says the devil's law case. And the part on top of that little line where he tells us he he starts the devil's law case is actually from A Maiden Head Well Lost by Haywood. So this is Webster's The Devil's Law Case. And the first line from it says, when women go to law, the devil is full of business. (laughs) And the rest of the manuscript is written like this, where he just goes from play to play and gives Mm -hmm. parts of it that he uh that he likes
0: yeah and he's got little lines it looks like he's got a little a little dash that starts maybe each section of what he's written instead of the number previously there was a the number and this is just like dash 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 so you can tell like where a new section is starting for a new yep. line
1: yep. yeah and sometimes he uses little dashes to indicate when he's starting a new extract but he doesn't always ah uh.
0: Okay. Thanks guy. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks William. Oh, this is so fun. And it's so like this whole, this whole process is so relatable. Like starting, I have this great idea and I'm going to start it and it's going to be great. And it's going to be so organized. And then, you know what? No, (laughs) this is much easier. I'm just going to read them and, and like, make, like I write, I have written notes on articles that look like this where you're just like, I'm just going to write out everything. I'll worry about organizing it later. If I ever do. I just, I, I'm feeling, I feel like I'm feeling him. I'm getting him on some kind of level. I don't know.
1: That's exactly why I love this. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, uh, uh, and he has all of the, he has so many notebooks, which I also find very relatable. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm a multi notebook person
0: yeah and you said that this one this one has a lot of blank pages too right like he, it's not like he's filling up notebooks he's just got a whole bunch of them and then it's like whatever one I have I'm gonna I'm gonna
1: fill in yeah and and this one also he does the classic thing where he starts in on one side this is the side that's written the most deep into the book um which is I think about 90 pages are written in but then there's like 400 blank pages mm-hmm. and um then uh on the other side, he, flips it upside down and starts writing in from the back um which was a classic uh early modern move yeah did they do that in the medieval period too dot i
0: i don't think i don't think so i think maybe a little bit but it's not something you see a lot if if they i know that i've seen it before but now i can't remember if i if it was you know earlier or if it was more it was later like this later you know early modern um I guess this is post-early modern, isn't it? You don't think this is early modern. This isn't technically early modern. Is it?
1: So early. I actually think that people would say this is early modern, but okay. it's, it wouldn't be considered Renaissance, uh, which right. is not a term we use anymore. Um, I mean, it's definitely long early modern.
0: Right. Um,
1: if, uh, uh, if the 18th century can go as long as it does, I don't see why we can't <laughs> have this too
0: that's true the long and the long 18th century is something like I don't even know like 1650 to 1850 or something like that yeah so it's this I long mean long.
1: I guess you could call this long 18th century except for the fact that it's backwards facing right this is not right. facing towards the uh, uh, present or the 18th century. this is facing back to back. the early 17th century
0: yeah this, that nostalgia which is also which is also yes. interesting yeah
1: so what I think so what I love here is that we see uh, uh what he's taking from the plays and we have some indication of which sources he's copying from but I want to give you another example of one of the books we know he's copying from. So I put a link in the chat to uh uh you can see the uh third impression this is the 1664 Shakespeare folio and it's the Shakespeare folio that prints The plays with, never before printed, Pericles, The London Prodigal, The History of Thomas Lord Cromwell, Sir John Oldcastle, Lord Cobham, The Puritan Widow, A Yorkshire Tragedy, and The Tragedy of Lockring. So these are Shakespearean apocrypha, except for Pericles, that get printed as the works of Shakespeare. I was going to say,
0: I've never heard of these. I'm like, these are new to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's the lesser known hits. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> so they're not actually Shakespeare except for Pericles which is uh Shakespeare co-wrote um and uh uh the and Sancroft uses this edition of Shakespeare's complete works
0: oh interesting
1: and so we he's... know that because he takes a couple of lines from a number of these plays from Sir John Oldcastle from the London Prodigal um but he also takes a full page from Pericles which is more his MO for most plays he takes like a fair chunk of um but he seems skeptical of this apocrypha in the way that we now are skeptical of this apocrypha right like he's only taking one little line
0: interesting like he was onto it He was like this doesn't seem right to me yeah is
1: that yeah and I wanna show you another example um, that we have here. Oh, so he, this Sancroft Manuscript 29 is the one that's mostly parts from plays, but it's not the only place where he copied parts from plays. So in two of his other, well, there's a couple of other manuscripts where he copies parts of plays, Uh, let's see. So do you see how familiar this book looks? If I didn't tell you this is a different manuscript, you'd think same manuscript. It's the, yeah, the writing's the same.
0: The margins, the, mar- the there's not as much margin here as the other one. That's the only thing that I would say the other one has more margin, but th- it, it looks the same otherwise, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and. What is a little bit harder to tell here is that this is Sancroft Manuscript 53 uh, and it is a poetic miscellany. So what it has is larger chunks of text instead of in that other one where it's like a line from here, a line from here, a line from here. This is a full chunk of text, which is the epilogue to every man in his humor, a Ben Jonson play. Um, and so in this one, he copies some uh, uh, he's not only going through and taking one pithy saying. is is not about the aphoristic one-liners. It's about a larger chunk. So he has uh, he copies a song from Othello and a song from Cymbeline in here, and the idea is that um, he's taking them as the whole unit. And if you look at the play, like if you look at where he's copying them from, they're actually typographically differentiated from the rest of the text in the printed play too
0: so like they're like they're printed as poetry and he's mm -hmm. taking them as poetry and putting them in his poetic commonplace instead of his dramatic commonplace because it's poetry is that yeah my understanding that yeah that's
1: yeah and then he has another uh miscellany uh which is uh 97 and let me open up that picture and show it to you too. And in Sancroft Manuscript ninety-seven, he has some Shakespeare parts. But what? But in this case, uh, the parts from these plays are not taken from the Folio. So he was actually reading in quartos, which are the individual play editions that were published first. Uh, although by the time, by the time he's reading Shakespeare, he could read from the first folio, the second folio, the third folio, which is new and improved with all these added plays, (laughs) uh, or those individual play editions. So actually, it's uh, the Bodleian Library gave up their copy of the Shakespeare first folio and replaced it with a third. You know, like librarians, you got to do some weeding, you want to get your best edition, get the one that has more plays. um, And they only... (laughs) uh uh got back like recently uh got back their copy of the first folio oh my
0: gosh it's amazing that it was still around do you know where it was who had their first folio
1: i think they they identified it because it had um it had been changed to one of the desks in i think duke Humphrey's reading room um oh. and so they identified it from that and i believe it was uh uh in a private owner but i can't remember
0: oh that's so funny that's so funny But yeah, Yeah. as a librarian, like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta update your collection and weave things out. That's hilarious. Get the new edition. I love
1: it. Yeah. So this page from Sancroft Manuscript 97 has, uh, you can see here uh, halfway down the page, it says York and Lancaster, and it says first part. And then uh, later on at the very bottom of the page, you can see in the margin, it says second part 2D Mm D P. Uh, cut P with the T, so that also means second part. Um, and this very clearly tells us that he was taking it from the individual play editions, because the Porto, the individual play editions of Henry the Sixth, Part Two, the title of it is "The First Part of the Contention Between Betwixt the Two Famous Houses of York and Lancaster."
0: And so and that's fact- what he's taken as his heading.
1: That's right. And yeah. that's what he's taking it. And you can go through. Um, what's interesting about dramatic extracts in general is that we in the 21st century have all of this 20th century baggage about bad quartos and play editions that aren't as good as others. And extracts show us that readers didn't necessarily differentiate like that. They didn't say, this is, uh, I, I only want the most correct text. They read what they could read. Right.
0: Right, and I guess that that's sort of leading up to my question, which is why do you have any sense of like why he would have used the cordos here and the folio in the previous one? Maybe it's just what he what he had to hand, and so that's what he was using.
1: Yeah, I think it it is what he had to hand, and I also think it speaks to the purposefulness in the other volume of saying, "And now I'm doing plays." Right, you don't accidentally have a massive works of Beaumont and Fletcher and like the the 1664 Shakespeare folio, like the Beaumont and Fletcher folio, they're huge. They, they're they not things that you carry around conveniently. Um, You turn to them on purpose. Uh, and so he's purposefully saying, I'm reading plays and I'm going to read plays from before the closure of the theaters.
0: Right. And this, this one, 97, the one we're looking at right now, this is a dramatic extract, but the book is more general. He's just, that's right. Some other...
1: Yeah. Okay. He has all sorts of stuff in here. So there's some history texts. There's some religious texts. There's uh, some plays uh, uh, and it is what he, what he possibly has to hand. And he copies from the, um, the Henry the sixth plays also in the 29 manuscript, the dramatic miscellany. I did take a couple of screenshots of um. Like, because this is all about the relation between print and manuscript. There are two uh pictures I want to show you here uh about like the this idea of commonplacing. So this is a bad picture from an Ebo facsimile, Early English Books Online, which is a facsimile from a microfilm. <laughs> and this is from uh, uh, John Fox's Pendecte Locorum Communion. And What it is, is a book that you could buy that had typed headings for you to fill out the commonplaces under. So this one. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. That page that is uh, on water and floods doesn't have anything, but in the ebo copy that got digitized, um, let me show you a page.
0: Oh, that got filled in.
1: Yeah. A page that got filled in. Um, which I love that the page that gets filled in is the one on tribulations, vexation.
0: So, vexations, afflictions, anguish. <laughs> that's great. So they didn't care about water. But, yeah, and floods, but they cared about that. That's that's so interesting. And I'm thinking there's also there must be modern modern equivalents to this too. Like not just a blank book, but blank books with like, here's where you write. This kind of thing. I don't know. I, I don't work in diary spaces, but I feel like that must be a thing that people still do.
2: Yes, yes, those things still exist. We have several of them. They're, my daughter's favorite book like that is something called Wreck This Journal. Oh, have you ever heard of that? No. No, it's this great little journal that's got writing prompts in it and also mm-hmm. action prompts that tells you to rip out this page and burn it. Or
1: take oh, this wow. page
2: outside and bury it under a rock
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah it's they're, they're fun <laughs> it's still very much a thing oh that's so interesting do they have anything like this where it's like write quotes or is it mostly like there, you should write
2: there, what you... no there's places that say write your favorite quote there's yeah. something to say something about you know your favorite food any just Mm -hmm. any kind of thing they're so random they're a lot of fun
0: yeah that's so that's so interesting but it's this long it it feels like this very very long history of humanity in this sort of specific genre almost that like you know tapping into this desire Mm -hmm. to how to put it but
1: and there's a new uh move new uh in pedagogy to have students create commonplace books to take the quotations from the materials that they're reading. Um, Vimala Pasupathi had one of the first articles about this. And uh, the piece that you mentioned that I have forthcoming this year, it's in an entire collection about teaching with commonplace books mm-hmm. and teaching commonplace books.
0: Yeah, it's really neat. It seems like something that should be, you know, interesting. Like I'm interested just listening to you talk about it on the podcast. I think it's I wish that I'd had professors teach me was commonplace books before maybe these were different. I don't know. It's fine. My education was fine. I'm very happy. <laughs> I have no complaints.
1: Yeah. I find the thing about these books, firstly, the way that we undertake research now makes our research into these books m- much different than it could have been even 20 years ago. So, when you look at a manuscript and you know that it's a bunch of quotations taken from someplace, how do you recognize where those quotations are from before Google, before mm-hmm. massive amounts of digitized yeah. texts, before uh, uh, literature online was one of the, the first ones, before Evo TCP, before Google Books, HathiTrust? Trust, um, that's where you mm-hmm. figure out where all of these things are from. And so you end up sort of reverse engineering some of this. So Sancroft is uh, uh, nice in some ways where he gives us the number code to start, where he starts with the Fletcher, and then he gives us at least a little title in the margin for what he's copying. But a lot of people who copy dramatic extracts give us nothing. It doesn't even tell us where one starts and one ends, and we don't know what play it's from or who the speaker is or anything like that.
0: Yeah, so mass digitization has helped a lot in that regard. Which is in terms of making it easier to, to find yeah. their references, yeah.
1: And it's also interesting, um, so we were talking about uh, manuscripts after the age of print. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a a figure um, from a piece that I have out in PBSA, the Papers of the Bibliographical Society of America. This is the top of a page repeated four times in four different editions from Uh, John Cockgrave's The English Treasury of Wit and Language, which is a 1655 print dramatic miscellany. This Mm -hmm. is entirely taken from plays. But as you can see, Cockgrave did not tell us who or where his things are from. And so some diligent readers before the internet went through and said where each one of these is from. And sure maybe the Shakespeare's identifiable but there are pieces in here like do, do you know uh all of the works of Richard Broom by heart too do you know I mean there's there's so much in here that it's I think it's fully miraculous that the then antiquarians who who uh did some of this marginalia one of them was named William Oldis. he's a pretty well-known fellow um the fact that they could figure this out at all and identified uh, uh tons of extracts in in this printed book. And then again, we get the manuscript print uh combination, the printed book with the manuscript marginalia.
0: That's so interesting. So there's a four, there's I guess it's five lines, and then there's a line. It does look like the line is printed. So they did he did separate the different bits, which helps. Yep.
1: He separated yeah. the different bits and he told us that these were common places digested from English plays and the title mm-hmm. page. So we know right. they're plays. We know these are, he's considering them commonplaces. He has them under commonplace headings that are alphabetized. He managed to do that system through the whole thing. It's a printed book, um, but he doesn't tell us uh, which play they are from. Um, that seems like a
0: oversight. Um, like, it seems yeah. like that's something that you'd want to know, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe the important thing is the idea, as you said earlier, like the idea and where did you get it? Who cares? Right.
1: Know. Because also now it's your idea. Now you're going to use it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. I feel like I've, I've been the last few days, I've been sort of overwhelmed Think reading about what's happening right now with AI, with generative, generative AI and like basically you know machines taking writing usually without consent right from people and like churning it and like spitting it out and this idea of like taking an idea is just it's really I don't want to say anything bad like I think these are these are really interesting historical artifacts but like putting the AI piece sort of in there as part of this history is kind of interesting I don't know what do you think of am I do I have something here, Laura or is this just me being overwhelmed because this is what I've been thinking about?
1: It. So uh, I have a couple of thoughts on on this. I think that uh AI would uh like is a version of commonplace culture and the idea that you take an idea and you make it yours and you don't cite it but this is also why AI can't pass uh an English undergraduate essay because an AI doesn't know how to use quotations as textual evidence and Mm -hmm. incorporate them grammatically and cite them. So that means yet. I mean, I wouldn't put a past AI to figure that out soon.
0: Right, yeah. Uh,
1: There's a really lovely um, website. Uh, It's called Commonplace Cultures. And this is 18th century. You were asking about what the future of this is from Mm -hmm. uh, or where the future goes. Uh, And this is actually a way where you can trace chunks of text that get moved into later uh, versions. And the thing that's fascinating about this is that, uh, so when we look at, my interest is what people took from plays. But the thing is, the playwrights are, Tiffany Stern calls them play patchers. Mm -hmm. They are not thinking about something all the way from scratch. They're taking things from other sources themselves. They are often using existing commonplaces or existing songs, especially prologues and epilogues. They're stitching them together into a unified whole that then get disassembled and reused in their component parts as well. The 18th century, uh, there's a tradition of beauties is what it's called, where you would have longer extracts, which would be like a really good speech
0: interesting so I'll put it I'll include a link to this to this website too if people want to take a look yeah. what are you thinking Lindsay
2: I can't help but look at what this fella did and especially when he was sort of self-inserting into the passages and it just makes me think about fan fiction mm-hmm. and you know the people who you know, like, well, this ver- version of the play is the purest. We can't possibly consider these things. I'm thinking about, <laughs> can't help it, Star Trek, Star Wars fans um, and the purity of the original trilogy. Uh-huh. And I just love thinking about how long we have thought about things like that in these similar ways. And I have to say that what's his name, Sancroft? I think he has raging ADHD. and <laughs> <laughs> um, Just seeing the way that he set out to do something big and grand, it's like, nope. I, I'm just gonna do it for me. Now, did he expect other people to use his manuscripts that he filled out, or was this just an exercise for him to do? That's mm-hmm. a really
1: good question. Um, so he did bequeath his library and he probably knew that his manuscripts would be preserved after his death, but there's not really an indication that he was expecting other people to use them as he was going. But we do have other instances. So um, one of the other uh, dramatic miscellanies, which is uh, in the British library right now, this is my cat. uh, <laughs> yeah. uh oh, yeah. Is compiled by Abraham Wright. It's British Library Additional Manuscript 22608. And that manuscript, he actually has a note that to his son to say, to buy more plays like these, go to this bookseller, bookseller in St. Paul's. And so he expected his son not only to read and use the little pieces that he took from it, but also to perhaps continue the tradition.
2: Well, that's interesting. Does... Anywhere does he talk about you know having a favorite play, or was there one that he just kept going back to time after time after time?
1: So uh, Sancroft did not leave commentary on his plays, but what you could do is you could look to see the plays that he copied more from and copied less from. But uh, Wright, the fellow I was just mentioning, he actually wrote about two or three lines on every play that he read. So. Uh, um, he liked, write liked Othello, but uh, thought Hamlet was only okay. Um, but Sancroft, so as I mentioned, some of the plays he only copies a couple of lines from would be like the Shakespearean Apocrypha in the uh, third folio. But then what I love about uh, Sancroft too, is that when you go to this source, then I get to go and read a bunch of plays that I had never read before. So I'd never read Quarles as the Virgin Widow until Sancroft read Quarles as the Virgin Widow. And then I'm reading Sancroft, so I get to go read the Virgin Widow. Um, in And this is also really interesting because it makes us think about canon too, right? So if there had been a folio published of work by Quarles, would Sancroft had gone and tried to read every play in that folio like he did with Beaumont and Fletcher, right? Yeah. Um And so you can also look at uh, uh, the like both the number of little pieces that he takes or the amount of pieces that he takes. Um, And so he does seem to like Shakespeare. He has over 20 pages of Shakespeare in this. That's all taken from the the folio. Um, And one of the ones that he doesn't take too much from is uh, a maidenhead Well Lost, but he does seem to like some of the John Webster plays. He wrote uh, usually fairly bloody tragedies. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, for Wright, who's one of the other people who compiled uh, Dramatic Miscellany, um, he copies a lot of James Shirley, m- much more James Shirley than Shakespeare. And He also copies one of my favorite bad plays now. It's by William Pepys called Love in Its Ecstasy. (laughs) And it has. Sorry,
2: that just sounds like such a cheesy romance title. I um, I love it.
1: Yeah, it's got everything you want disguises, sheep. That's everything you want. (laughs)
0: That is everything I want. He read my mind.
1: (laughs) It's a royalist pastoral.
0: Oh my gosh, I love it.
1: Yeah, so one of the things I love about these manuscripts in general is that they encourage us to go back and read things that are not reprinted and that are not taught anymore. So the project that I'm working on with Beatrice Montadoro at the University of Zurich is DEX, a database of dramatic extracts. And in that, what we are doing is we're transcribing all of these extracts because right now it can be hard to even know what's out there. So a lot of extracts are listed in Peter Beale's catalog of English literary manuscripts, but Beale only lists plays by canonical authors. So William Peeps tragically does not make the cut. (laughs) Um, And uh, uh, some of them are also listed in say, the Folger Union First Line Index of Verse, but that's only if things are copied as poetry. So we had one example of a Sancroft manuscript where he copies a piece of the play as a poem, but the rest of it, like Sancroft's 29, none of that's in the Folger first line index because that first line index is about poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, And even if you go to any of these sources that list them, you can't see what's been copied. So what's been challenging and interesting for us is that we offer the transcription of what's in the manuscript, And then we try to offer a transcription of the play, except that there's more than one version of these plays, right? Mm -hmm. And especially when it's been changed from what is in the play, we are not always certain. Like it's great in Sancroft's case here where I'm like, I know these two folios that he copied from, and here's a specific quarto that he used, but we can't always be that certain too. So which version do we count as the original. And also, uh, as Dot mentioned, sometimes people are copying, uh, they're jotting things down while they're attending a performance. We know um, Edward Pudsey did that in his manuscript. So what is the original version then? But we like to give that because sometimes you need to, um, it would be really hard to search otherwise. So, because sometimes they do things like change a really big word. Uh, Sancroft changed um, changed the measure for measure into the first person. A keyword search would probably still get you like head, blocks things like that. Um, but there's a line from a folk gravel play that is treason is like a basilisk's eye. And one compiler changed that and used a synonym for basilisk. Treason is like a cockatrice's eye. Mm. And you're never going to find that unless we encode the other version of that as well.
0: There's so much interesting uh, here, because I know in previous episodes, and I can't think of exactly which ones, but I know that we've talked about the issue of modern um, modern scholarship being sort of in, um, I'm gonna have trouble thinking of what the word is, but um, being more sort of segmented and broken, and wanting to like put things in boxes. So this thing about, well, it's poetry, it's drama. And like clearly he was doing this too, right? Because he has his dramatic miscellany and he's got his um poetic miscellany. Um, but I don't know, it, it just feels like it's so it's kind of detrimental, to, as you say, to like even to like finding things, you know, to to saying, well, we only put it in here because it's poetry and Sure, it's in the play, but it's really poetry, or it's not, or this thing. And like, instead of just putting it all, I don't know, instead of just putting it all in, it's like, put it all in and let let people sort it out. I don't know.
1: Yeah, and I have to say that our project is not doing any better on that, because we're saying, oh, just the drama. Only the drama that's yeah. leave <laughs> out the rest. And only the drama that's from uh, uh, early, 20, early 17th century. So yeah. for instance, we would skip the Otway and Dryden extracts in this manuscript. Um, mm-hmm. The way I look at it, though, is that these are—it's a puzzle, and we're all trying to reconstruct this puzzle of our literary and cultural past. And if we can put in a little piece here, we can see how they all fit together a little bit better. While also recognizing that some of these puzzle pieces will be unrecoverable—they are just gone. the The reason we have Sancroft's manuscripts is because they were bound, and he's an archbishop. This is why they've survived. Uh, the survival rate for unbound manuscript pages is, uh, I think, Heather Wolf and Steve May estimated at one in ten thousand. So, yeah, what what survives? That's also uh, something we have to think about too. Which is why I really enjoyed the episodes that you had on fragments mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what I think a lot of people, this is going to be going off on a little bit of a tangent, but oftentimes when you, you know, manuscript digitization, as I've got my hand up and it's like, it's over here, far on the right. But like, we talk a lot about what gets digitized, but you can't really talk about what gets digitized without talking about what got collected in the first place. And what got collected in the first place was oftentimes about the whims of, you know, whoever it was that was doing the collecting, which in reality was often like rich white men, so whatever rich white men were interested in at any given time in history, you know, there's gonna be a lot of great stuff that didn't get collected, so we don't have it at collections, so it's not gonna get digitized. And so what you end up, if you're looking for manuscripts on your computer, it's a tiny, like tiny, tiny fragment of what was in the world You know, from now all the way back in history. So, and this is a great example of that, this, well, if it wasn't bound and it wasn't by the archbishop of canterbury you know then who who knows like maybe there's some that's saved but a lot of it is just going to be gone
1: yeah and it just is. Yeah. I really like uh some of the work on recipe receipt books uh, uh as a corrective to that by turning to the women's domestic manuscripts um i think that's been a really lovely but as you say like that's still There's only still a fraction of those that are preserved. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: We've been talking for quite a while, so we should probably think about maybe uh, bringing it to an end. But before we do, Lindsay, do you have any last questions or thoughts for Laura? A
2: couple of questions. I would love to know personally what your favorite work of Shakespeare is.
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, So my favorite work of Shakespeare changes. And it depends on what I am specifically working on. So for a while, if you'd asked me that, I would have said Richard II. Um now I might actually say King Lear. Um, that's what I'm I'm interested. I'm I'm doing a little piece on that. Um, and the thing I love about reading Shakespeare and early modern drama in general is that. It changes when, as you read it, as who you are and what you've been thinking about. And I also love reading it through early readers and thinking about what an early reader has interpreted for me um, as well. So anyway, right now I am fascinated by King Lear. That's a good choice.
2: Um, Second question I ask this of most of our guests is if you could spend time with a manuscript, any manuscript in the world, what would it
1: be? And why? I did know that you asked that question of many of your guests. And of course, I didn't prepare an answer, for that, um, which I should have. So what I will say is we don't have. So if we think about Shakespeare, we only have one manuscript that might have his handwriting in a play, which is the Sir Thomas More manuscript. And I've had a chance to see that in exhibition with big glass, like very fancy. Um, but we don't have his manuscript of King Lear. We don't have his manuscript of Othello. Um, And I'm actually a little bit convinced by Leah Marcus's argument that even if we had those manuscripts, it wouldn't clarify things for us. Because as soon as we get manuscripts involved, things get even messier than in print. And there are, it is opened up to even more interpretive possibilities. So if I could spend time with any manuscript. Hmm. I think that I would want to spend time with a play, like a lost play manuscript that no one else has ever seen. One of the ones that we don't have evidence of, or that we only have evidence of from the title, like Cardenio or Love's Labors One. I want to be the first person to read a 17th century play, even if that 17th century play is not great. That's a
2: great answer.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Laura, for coming on and telling us all about this amazing, not only the manuscript, but like the the practice, you know, widespread practice behind it, not only at the time, but also, you know, before and also today, like it's, it's, it's really great to see it as part of this much larger history.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's a a, a pleasure to be on.
0: Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.